There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 327. And today in the show, we're diving deep into the story of how we found and purchased our meat eater back 40 farm and advice for finding your own special piece of ground. If you've ever dreamed of owning a hunting property, this one's for you. Okay, hello folks, and welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Onyx. Today in the show, we are shifting gears a little bit, as many of you are probably switching gears in your minds too. You know, the holidays are here, and the 2019 deer hunting season is either wrapped up for you, or very soon will be. So, With that said, we're going to start looking forward a little bit to the new year. Now, almost exactly a year ago, at the beginning of last year, I was just beginning a project, a process that honestly was really daunting. For the first time in my life, I was trying to find a piece of hunting land to buy. It's something that so many of us dream of, we wonder about, we imagine. Um, And it's something that I always assumed that when I had the means to do it, to actually purchase a hunting property, it'd just be a piece of cake. Once you could do it, oh, it's just all rainbows and butterflies. But I quickly found out that's not exactly true. There's a lot more to it than I realized. But as most of you know, I was able to find a piece of ground and together with Meat Eater, we bought it. We bought the Back 40 and it's now being documented for this new show called the back 40. So today what I wanted to do was pull back the curtains on the story of that search. You know, everything that happened in the beginning, how we decided the types of places we were looking for and the struggles I had finding a spot, what the criteria were. Um, and then ultimately once we decide, okay, this is the property we want, what all goes into actually putting in an offer and dealing with the landowner and figuring out all these other little bits of minutia that I had no idea about. That's what we're going to talk about, what I learned along the way, the ins and outs of how we were able to purchase this piece of 64 acres, and everything you need to do uh, to go through the same process yourself if someday down the road you decide it's something you want to do. So that's what we've got in store today. Joining me for the conversation is Joe Gizdick and Sean Kelly, the team members from Whitetail Properties who helped me through this process last spring. Uh, This conversation was recorded 
early this year, just after we bought the farm. So uh, as you listen to it, you'll hear me full of optimism and, and this unknown. I don't know what's the what the year has in store now. Many of you do know it was uh, all sorts of interesting things happened, struggles, trials and tribulations, and some, some amazing success too along the way. So without further ado, let's take a break to thank a couple of our partners, and then we'll get right to my chat with Joe and Sean. Before we do that, though, I got to give a little plug here to that Back 40 series I just mentioned, because if you've not seen these episodes over on the Meteor YouTube channel, you got to check it out. Uh, they're coming along. Our project has been full of, as I mentioned, ups and downs, and I think our videos are showcasing that in a way that's pretty compelling. I might be biased, but our last two episodes of the season just came out. This showcases my ultimate success, finally trying to kill a mature buck. And then the second episode uh, kind of recaps the recovery and some special moments that I shared with my son and my father. Uh, and there, it's probably my favorite work we've done to date yet. So go on over to the Media to YouTube channel. We've got seven episodes out right now. Check it out. Feedback's been great. I think you'll enjoy it, and, and probably you should watch that first before listening to this episode because it will kind of color what's possible if you were to go down this road. So with that all said, a couple of partners too. All right, with me now on the line is Joe Gizdick and Sean Kelly from Whitetail Properties. Thank you guys for taking the time to do this. Thank you. Glad to be here. My pleasure. And uh, it, it's neat to finally be able to have this conversation that we're about to be having because I've talked a lot in past years with folks from Whitetail Properties about what the whole buying process is like or what to be thinking about when making the decision to purchase a piece of hunting ground. And there's, there's a lot to it, but I was always hearing about it secondhand. You know, I was always talking to someone who went through it or I was talking with a land specialist about what that's like, but I never had been in those shoes before um, and never been able to actually work with someone at Whitetail Properties in that kind of capacity. But now I actually have. Um, so I'm looking at this thing from a whole new perspective, and uh, I'm excited to have this different kind of conversation now. But I guess before we dive into what just has been going on over the past couple months, I do want to make sure that folks listening know you know, exactly what it is you guys do with Whitetail Properties. So maybe, Joe, could you quickly just introduce who you are and what you do, and then, and Sean, you can hop on after that? Sure, sure. can. I'm Joe Gizdick. I'm based out of Pittsfield, Illinois, out of our home office. I'm a sales manager for Whitetail Properties Real Estate and also run our auction division, which is ranch and farm auctions. Uh, for years, I was a sales agent just like Sean, Sean uh, and then had the opportunity to those other agents. Sean? Yeah, I'm Sean Kelly. I'm the Southeast Michigan and South Central Michigan agent for Whitetail Properties. Um, I help people buy and sell land in, in the Southeast Michigan area. And and that's why, you know, you and me started working because I was looking for some ground in that area. Uh, and I'm glad it worked out that way because uh, I've really enjoyed getting to, to chat with you more, Sean, and getting to work with you on this stuff. And I guess that should be how we just get into it because over the past five months or so, I've been on this search myself for a small hunting property. So my game plan here today was to, to kind of share that story um, while you guys are here with me to interject and, and give your own perspectives on things or give different opinions or ideas about things that I did or what other people might go through when they're involved in that own process themselves. Uh, and I think we'll be able to take a look at this one specific example 
and use it to discuss the larger story and process of bioproperty. And I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. So we will start at the very beginning when I just start looking at this stuff and we'll eventually get to the point where, you know, you and me, Sean, start talking and you eventually start helping me. And when we finally got to the point where we actually closed on a property and the very first step for me, at least, was kind of thinking through and deciding on the criteria as far as what am I looking for in a property. And at a real high level, what I had determined, and and I remember, Sean, you probably remember this, you and me had a conversation about this, but at a high level, what I was looking for was a small property, relatively affordable, probably like 30 to 60 acres at the most, in which I could, you know, manage and have some quality deer hunting while also, you know, there being opportunities to, to really work the ground, have diversity, habitat, and to have, um, you know, the opportunity to do a bunch of different things. Cause I, I was looking at this property, not just as like, I want to just kill big bucks, but I also wanted something that we could use, you know, through wired hunt to be an educational tool, something we could use as an example to share with people, all these different ideas about how to manage habitat, how to, you know, implement different private land conservation practices, of course, how to manage deer, all these different things. I really want something that would be like a, a blank canvas or like the right canvas to draw this, this picture on, you might say as an analogy. Um, so, so it was a kind of unique set of criteria I had, but in general, all the other things that you look for, for a good small hunting property applied to. So I was looking for a property that could, you know, hold deer. So I want some cover. I was looking for a property that I thought I'd be able to access with different wind directions and things like that. I looked at the neighborhood, who else was around me? Might there other be, be other people that maybe would have similar management goals? Um, I looked at the place, like, does this have the potential, like, to do the kind of projects I'd want? So would there be places to grow food plots? Would there be places to have quality bedding areas? All that kind of stuff um, at a really high level were some of the things I was looking for. Um, but I guess I'm curious from your guys' perspective, and maybe Sean, uh, I know we had these conversations, you and me, and you shared a little bit of insight into this, but what are some of the other things that you talk to people about or that you'd recommend people thinking about when they are determining what their criteria should be for what's a good property, right? They go out there, they start looking. What are some of the things that you think are important for someone to consider? Uh, I think everything that you talked about were kind of like a lot of the basic or, or the core core things, but you know, somebody just has to sit down and, and really do what you did as far as identifying your needs. And what I find is that you know, whether you're a buyer, a seller, or the, the property, they can be so different from one another. It's, it's kind of just that individual needs to sit down and, and really map out everything they want in a property, like their needs and their wants, and then then start looking for it. Yeah. For, for Is that kind of like where you're going with that, that question? Yeah. And what about like on a small, like for someone who's coming at it with the budget to do something like this size, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 acres, something like that. Um, I know you're a serious deer hunter too, and you're, you're looking at a lot of these places. Are there any other little things you look for on a property that make you think, oh, this could be a good small property? Anything like that? Yeah. You know, I think the number one thing is something you talked about was, you know, identifying your neighbors. And when I say neighbors, not just, you know, the people, but the terrain, what, what's surrounding you, because, you know, and if one of your goals is, is big bucks, you want to have, uh, you want to be centered in an area where your bucks are going to reach an older age class. And if, 
if you've got terrain around you that's really difficult to hunt and people can't get in there and, and really do a hurting on the deer herd or the, or the bucks that are there, then that's a good thing for your property. If that's one of your needs, you might want deer numbers. Um, but I think neighbors is one of the most important things. Yeah. Uh, Joe, would you add anything else as far as how to think about the criteria process or any yeah. specifics? Yeah, I got I got several suggestions. One one is I would make that list of what you're looking for, then I'd prioritize that list. What is the most important thing to you to what is the least important thing? Because most guys get into this, okay, they want a pond for fishing, they want a nice cabin, they want a great big bucks, and they want to pay half price. That stuff doesn't exist sometimes. So you got to make sure uh, what your priorities are uh, and, and get those in a list and make sure that that's a fluid list. I'm going to tell you most of the time when you go to start, start showing farms as a land specialist, we'll take a buyer and we'll, we'll, what his list was originally may be turned completely upside down by the time he settles in on a farm. Because after you look at two, three, four, five, 20 farms, it doesn't matter. We'll show you as many as you want to look at until you find that piece that speaks to you and that fits your criteria. So that list is not a hard line outline. It is, it is a living, breathing uh, list. So just don't, don't be so focused on it has to be exactly all these details because a lot of times those details that you want, you can actually create with your own work and own habitat management. So. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I definitely felt like I – I kind of had to readjust expectations too myself. Like I came into it thinking, okay, we're going to get A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? It's going to be, it's going to be in a great neighborhood. There's going to be great terrain. There's going to be opportunity for food. There's going to be the best neighbors in the world. There's going to be, you know, 18 million different things that I wanted out of it. And what I found and what was kind of interesting, at least in my process at first, it took a while, but I thought that once you make the decision to buy a farm, like you've got the financing, you can do it. I always thought, oh, it'd be easy to find the right one. My, the, I always thought the the holding up was just making the decision to do it. And then once I made the decision, that spot would be there, and I could just have a lot of fun looking at a couple places, and then pick my Christmas present. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it didn't it didn't end up being like that. It actually ended up being a little bit frustrating because I couldn't find the right fit. I felt like I was looking and looking and looking, and 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 I'll kind of in a second here walk through some of these specific places I looked at, but. I would see something and, yeah, this isn't going to work. And I'd see another one and, and maybe I'd find one that I thought would be a pretty good fit. And then the next day I found out it was under contract and sold. Um, so it ended up being a lot harder than I thought it was going to be, just at least because of I was because I was, I was in a narrow area. Like I had to find something within – I was trying to find something within an hour of where I live. Um, it was not as easy to find a really high-quality property as I thought it was going to be. Um, and you made some good points, Sean, about you know the importance of what's the rest of the area around the property. I had a couple spots that looked really great as an individual parcel, but they were like islands in the middle of nothing. And I just had to mm-hmm. be tough on myself and say, yeah, the, the parcel looks awesome, but look at the big picture and how do you really think that's going to play out? Um, Joe, are there mm-hmm. any other specific things when it comes to when someone's trying to analyze a small property and determine like, is this a, let's just say their goal is, Hey, I want to manage for older age class bucks. I want to, I want a small property that's going to make for great hunting and I want some mature deer on it. That's my number one goal, but I can only get something that's, you know, 30 to 60 acres. Um, are there any other specific criteria you'd suggest thinking about than the ones we've talked about? 
you know, uh, Sean hit those points really well. The, the neighborhood is key. To, uh, terrain is a, a giant key. You need to be able to get in and get out without spooking deer if you're planning on holding deer on your farm. Uh, some of these are better suited to, uh, if you have neighbors who don't hunt or you have a wildlife reserve or something that can't be hunted semi-close. You're better off to have not the best bedding habitat, but more of the food habitat. My personal farm is that way. I've got several areas, acres around me that are no hunting, but I hold all the food. So uh, that, that was just a neighborhood that I ended up in where my house is at. Uh, I would probably prefer the other way around, uh, but I do I do enjoy my situation where nobody else is bothering a deer. But yeah. when you were going through that, you brought up two key points that I'd like to expound upon just a little bit. Uh, one, uh, the first one is be patient. Uh, and you learn that uh, just because you decide you're going to buy something doesn't mean you got to run out to the grocery store and pick it up. Uh, be patient. Look at several. Make sure it fits. Make sure you find the one that fits that uh, meets your criteria and just perfectly, perfectly honest is pretty to you. It's something that you like and you will enjoy. Number two in your conversation there was if you find the right piece, be ready to make an offer immediately because if it's the right piece, there's a good chance it's the right piece for somebody else too. And there's several other buyers like yourself looking. So you have to manage that being patient with being able and ready to strike fairly fast when you find the right one. Cause it is, it is a little bit, uh, it, it hurts your heart to know you found the perfect piece and somebody else has already got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you know, Sean, you and me had a conversation about this because once I started searching, I started, you know, looking at what whitetail properties had to offer and I talked to you on the phone and you mentioned you did have one parcel that was kind of within my range that might be of interest and and then I started kind of walking you through what this criteria was that I just described and you mentioned that it's actually pretty hard to find pieces like that that stay in the market very long, right? Because if there is a really good piece that hits all the, you know, checks all the boxes, they go pretty fast, right? Is that what you've seen around here? Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially in, in this this area, it's um, there's a lot of hunters looking for that that perfect piece, and when they come up, they're not there very long. Yeah, that's definitely what I what I saw, and and I think something that might illustrate some of these different criteria we were looking at and how I thought through it was the first property I went to go look at. We made the decision, like, we're going to buy this, we're going to buy a property. I pulled up the Whitetail Properties website and I started looking at stuff within the ballpark of where I'm at. And I, I originally thought I might be able to look into northern Indiana and northern Ohio as well as Michigan. So I start scrolling through and looking at properties on the map and I saw a small property listed uh, with Tim Woods down in Ohio and I pulled it up and right away I saw mm-hmm. it was small, but it had lots of cover on it. It was, it was 27 acres. So it was on the, on the very low side of what I was looking at, but it was all like pine mm-hmm. trees and cedars and tall grass and just gnarly thick cover. And then it connected into some bigger timber, um, and some good looking country. So from like, I looked at the aerial map. I kind of liked what I saw from an aerial perspective. I looked at all the pictures. I really liked the fact that it was, it was almost all cover, but there were little openings, little grassy patches where you could put a quarter acre, half acre food plot, that kind of thing. Um, there was a handful of trail camera pictures, didn't show me much, but it was very intriguing and it was really affordable. It was on the, you know, because of how small it was, it definitely fit within our budget we were working with. So right away I called Tim up 
I said, hey, can I go? Can we go check out this property? He's like, yep, let's do it. And I went and walked it. And it was really, it, it was one of those things, like you said, Joe, it feels right. Like it was pretty. It felt pretty to me. I got out there and just had that, oh, wow. Like this just, it looked like what you imagine like a brushy, cedary, thicket in Iowa looking like. Like I could just see a 170-inch yeah. five-year-old buck stepping out <laughs> and walking towards my stand. Yeah. And right away, like, I fell in love with it. I started walking. like, oh, my gosh, there's, it's so thick. But also there's these areas, there's like paths cut through where I th- this used to be like an old Christmas tree farm, I guess, parts of it over the years. So it was all different age classes um, and big kind of cutouts throughout it where there were these small openings that you could do cool things with. Some was mm-hmm. young, some was old. There's nice diversity. But, you know, you could yeah. make, you could hold deer. No doubt about it, you could hold deer. And I walked through it and I flushed, I bumped like, I don't know, 15, 20 turkeys and there was a shed antler on the ground and those big rubs and all the all those little like light bulbs were blasting off in my face like this is cool and i was tempted to say right then then and now i was like oh let's buy it let's do it um but i caught myself and i was like you know what that's i feel like that's one of those common mistakes that i've heard about like you fall in love with the first thing you see um like if you go to pick up a puppy at the store and you that first puppy that runs up to you and and licks your shoe usually it's really easy to say oh my gosh that's the one um i was worried that might happen though so i tried to like okay i'm not gonna make a decision today i need to go home and like think about this um and not be emotional is that was I doing something and experiencing something that a lot of people go with, Joe? Is that a common thing, and is that a common uh, mistake, maybe? Or am I was I thinking thinking about it too much? It, it is, but I can tell you if you've been through the process several times, uh, not being your first time, if you fell in love with it off the bat, you would have made an offer right then and there. You wouldn't have waited because I don't know whether that property sold or not, but yeah, my, if it feels right, a lot of times it is the right farm. Uh, but I always tell guys, I mean, if, if, if you're working with a good land specialist, they'll let you know if there's any activity on it, whether they think it's going to sell, uh, whether other people are looking at it immediately too, and that can help guide your decision. But, uh, guys do both. They, they wait too long when they find the perfect property, just like that, because they figured the first one out can't be it. The first one I look at can't be perfect. And then the other guys will, uh, will jump on it and buy something and then have buyer's remorse after they get to closing or something else comes on the market in a month that's closer to home or a better fit for their needs or whatever. So you're, you're going to lose some, you're going to win some. You just got to realize you can't take it personally. can't take it. You can't be discouraged by it. I'm just going to learn from every transaction or non-transaction. I'm going to learn from every property I look at. I'm going to refine my criteria every time I go out. And I'm going to work with somebody who's going to help me refine that criteria. I mean, I'm sure if you look at several farms of Sean, as you went through, he was all of a sudden, he knows what you want. You don't even have to call him. And something comes on the market, he can call you right away and let you know that that, that property's on uh, either coming to the market or on the market. And he, he knew about it. So he can help search that down for you because he's been able to spend enough time with you to learn what you want. Yeah, and I did have that experience with with Sean and some other agents because I was kind of looking at all these different regions. So so everyone was really helpful in that kind of way. And with this one in particular, you know, I've been talking to Tim about it, and he did keep me abreast of some different offers coming in, and and that got me a little worried because I had that first 
interest. And then I was like, okay, I need to wait. I need to look at at least something else just to have some context, something to compare against, you know? Um, but then another offer did come in. Uh, fortunately it was at the moment, it was like a low ball offer and, and they didn't take it. So I still thought I had time. So I remember starting to try to go deeper with my like research process. And this is a little thing that I've started to do throughout this whole, uh, this whole handful month period here that I really did try to put a lot of time behind the research of a neighborhood. Cause like you guys both said, especially when you're going to buy a small property, you know, so much of what's going to happen on your property is going to be influenced by who's around you. And if you want to be able to hunt mature bucks or see a lot of deer or whatever it is you're trying to do, um, it's, it's really helpful if the other people around you are on a similar page. And so what I did, it's a little creepy maybe, but I did it, um, was I started Googling all the property owners around that farm. So I would find the names on Onyx or like in the tax records and I would start searching for their name and then things like keywords related to deer hunting. So I would look for like John Deere, we'll just say his name's John Deere. <laughs> I looked for John Deere uh, deer hunting or I would look for John Doe maybe is a better, John Doe uh, hunting, John Doe buck, John Doe big buck. And just to see if like, you know, someone had their picture posted on Facebook or if someone was in an article or whatever it might be, I don't know, just to see what happened. And it actually worked in this case on this property because one of the neighboring property owners got featured in a local newspaper because him and his wife had both killed really big bucks on opening day gun season and they made the news. So I was thinking, man, this is great. Like I can see that a neighboring landowner shot two really nice mature bucks on the same day right next to this place. So that tells me like, all right, in the general area, there's some good deer. Um, I also talked to Tim, who was able to talk to the landowner and get me a little bit of information about what the previous owner had done from a hunting standpoint. Um, and then I also looked at Onyx maps and just looked for names I recognized. Again, this might be a little bit, you know, I don't know if that's stalkery or not, but it's just doing due diligence when you're buying this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And I just want to see, like, do I recognize any names? And I happen to recognize a name of a, of a, of a person who's somewhat known who I had heard had had a lot of success in this area, the general area. And lo and behold, this person's property is within like a mile. So that gave me another really big like, oh, man, you're in a good area. You know of two different people around here that take hunting pretty seriously and they're doing pretty well. You got good cover. You got all these things. Um, is there anything else you guys have done on that, on like the research side? Like, because everyone says the neighbor, you got to pay attention to the neighborhood. You need to look for good neighbors. You need to look for that. But it's it's harder than, it's easier said than done, I guess, is what I've experienced a little bit. Is there anything else you guys have done or heard people doing to, to yeah. learn? Google search and Facebook search is something we as agents and land specialists do, too. If uh, if you call me as a buyer, I'm going to probably Google you a little bit. I'm going to learn a little bit about you. I want to know what makes you tick and whether what you're saying is anything true. Same way you call me the cell farm, I may Google you. Uh, I'm going to look you up. I'll Facebook you. The whole ball of wax just to... And I don't think it's stalkerish. Uh, I think it's due diligence. I think I, I encourage everybody to do that. When you're looking at those places on Onyx or any other mapping programs that you may use, um, I, I like to look for larger landowners too, especially when you're having a looking for a smaller tract. If you're surrounded by larger landowners, and they, it doesn't have to be thousands of acres, uh, but if it's larger landowners, uh, it's always better. It's you know a large landowner may have a couple, uh, 400 acres may have two or three people to hunt it, 
Uh, the same may be the case of a, if it's a 40. So there may be two or three people hunting that 40. Uh, so if you got a bunch of 40s, you're going to have a little bit different uh, hunting pressure than if you do if you have a bunch of uh, larger landowners around you. So a small parcel in a, a larger landowner area is definitely a plus, but they generally don't last because that larger landowner will snap them up before they even hit the markets. Yeah. What about you, Sean? Anything else as far as researching the neighborhood? No, I think like I think what you what you did is something that you know we land specialists do already. Like we're we're familiar with our territories, and like there's you know certain areas like you know and big buck nights that I go to, and like I can tell you what big bucks on what year at the you know big buck show were shot in certain areas, and like in my head, like when I'm when I'm listing property or showing property, I'm I'm usually always bringing up like this this buck was shot here that was within a mile of this, this property. Um, the lady state crossbow record here, that's within a mile of this property. This guy's, you know, 200 inch deer was shot within a mile of this property. And, you know, things that you did are, are things that we all do, I think. And, and that's where a lot of our, you know, expertise comes in that we've done a lot of that homework and have a lot of it readily available. Yeah. I will say that was a nice thing to have being able to talk to you and Tim and Tony um, in your respective areas was the fact that I knew that who I was talking to knew what they were talking about. Uh, I knew that they were, we were speaking the same language and the fact that um, I think that when you talk to a, a regular real estate agent who's just trying to sell land, they don't really know what would be a quality area or which areas are the good ones. Like there was a property I looked at that was not listed with whitetail properties, just a random real estate agent. And uh, I talked to this person and I said, Hey, do you know anything about the neighborhood? Do you know anything about the other landowners? Do, have you heard of them practicing quality deer management or anything? I happened to see a sign on one barn. Do you know anything about that? Can I talk to the landowner? And the agent's like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's really, really good area. Um, I've heard lots of great things about this very high quality hunting area. Um, and she's like going on and on about that. And she's like, just last year, I think they killed like seven doe or seven bucks. I think they were like a, a five point. There was a seven point. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, Oh, you're, we're not speaking the same language. Like, um, <laughs> you're. That's good information though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so I think just knowing who you're talking to and, and the lens they're looking at this stuff with uh makes a big difference. So it was nice, at least with you guys, that I knew that you would have a, a pulse, your finger on the pulse of what was going on in these different regions. And that was that well, was helpful. I, I would add to that that I would encourage somebody who's looking to buy to get engaged with a land specialist because they can show anything that's listed. You don't have to talk to the listing agent because the listing agent sometimes doesn't know anything. It's their uncle's or her brother's farm or somebody. I mean, a lot of a lot of listing agents really don't know much about hunting or recreational value. And you can see that in their listings. They don't. They have one aerial photo, one picture, or one tree. Uh, I would engage as a buyer with a land specialist like Sean and say, "Hey, here's what I'm looking for," and I looked at. Jane Doe's listing over here. Can you call her? Can we go look at this? Can you can you tell me anything about this area? Because I promise you, a guy like Sean knows more about that area than the listing agent ninety percent of the time. That's why that's why with our corporation, we vet all these guys to a point. And Sean will tell you the the interview process is pretty rigorous. We vet all these guys because we want them to be land specialists, not just on what they 
are listening, but their whole territory, their whole region, we want them to know that inside and out. We want them to know where every big buck's killed, all the landowners, who the best farm tenant is, uh, et cetera. They, we want them to know everything. So I would engage them. If I was a buyer, I would engage somebody I felt comfortable with, someone like Sean, and say, here's what I'm looking for. And I found a couple of these, although they're listed with competitors, can you find information out about them for me? Because the misconception is that you have to call the listing agent all the time, and you don't. Find find an agent that you're comfortable with and use them as your buyer's agent at no additional charge to you. I mean, that's all that's all paid out of the original commission. Most Most buyers don't understand that. But if you find somebody you like and trust, stay with that person. They can show you anything. Yeah, that was the biggest probably aha moment for me out of this whole process because I didn't understand that. I thought yep. I thought I had to talk to whoever the listing agent was, and then I thought that if I brought in another agent, like I, I had I, someone else mentioned to me, hey, you know, do you need a buyer's agent? And, I, and my initial reaction was, well, I don't know. I need to talk to like some other people, and I don't even know if we want an agent involved. Like, does that make things more complicated? Is that going to have like increased fees? Um, so I was initially like resistant to that idea. I thought I can just find stuff, find myself. I'm savvy on the internet. Um, I'll be fine. Uh, looking back on it now, after after being now at the end of the process, I wish I had pulled in a buyer's agent like Sean earlier than I did because it ended up being really, really helpful. Couldn't have done it without him now in the end looking at it. Um, so, so yes, I 100% agree with that now. Not only are you getting the knowledge base, but you're also getting the benefit of knowing more anybody else. If you engage that person, say, hey, this is what I'm looking for. And it may be you're looking for 60 acres, but Sean – knows of 400 acres, the guy says, I'll sell a couple pieces off of it. Now, all of a sudden, that's something that never hits the market as a 60. It may be hit the market as a 40, but he knows that could be split off, and it fits your criteria. The only way to do that is to engage with somebody you trust and believe in and, and build that relationship with. And once you do that, that guy will go to work for you trying to find something that fits your criteria. Yeah. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go. But here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That brings up another 
challenge I dealt with, which was because of my small area that I was interested in, I looked at the different options that Whitetail Properties had, and there were a couple good options, but they didn't fit my budget. There was a couple good options that were, were there a couple options that were within my budget, but just weren't quite fitting all the criteria I had. So I walked, I think, four different farms that you guys had listed, of which, you know, there were a couple possibilities, but eventually I decided, no, nah, I just don't think they're going to be the right fit. So then I was like, well, what am I going to do mm-hmm. now? Where am I going to find something? So I just started like searching every possible online real estate website I could think of and Googling different keywords and going just through all sorts of different filters. And that became like a long, frustrating experience, but I did a lot of searching online trying to find stuff. Do you guys have you know, any other advice or uh, recommendations as far as finding something? Or how do you guys go about it once you say, okay, we want something in this, let's say, two-county area. We're going to say that John Doe really wants a farm in these two counties, but you know, there just doesn't, there isn't one that Whitetail Properties has listed that fits that criteria. What's the next step that you guys would recommend taking um, either you yourself as a buyer's agent if you're working with someone or if I'm an individual and I'm just searching anything to make that easier? Um, any other ideas other than what I did? Uh, I don't know, Sean, do you have anything you'd, you'd suggest? Um, I, I think what you did is, is pretty typical and, and a good place to start, you know, getting into the, the Whitetail Properties website and, and sorting out some of the things that you're, you're looking for. And if that doesn't turn up uh, exactly what you're looking for, there's so many different search engines out there, you know, and also by having like a, a buyer's agent help you, they can provide you with a number of things, but it takes a lot of mining. You're mining all this, all these listings and they're not all readily available in one search engine. So, you know, by, by doing what you did, you were able to kind of uncover some things and, and put them in front of me. And then we were able to look at them. And I think that's, you know, uh, something that a lot of people do because they'll get frustrated with their agent possibly and they start getting into um, some of the different search engines and then, you know, bring in that information to the to the agent and then they're able to look at it under a microscope a little bit more. What about you, Joe? Uh, yeah, a lot of guys start right where you did. Uh, some savvy buyers, guys who've done this several times, will just, and if I were buying today in a, in a territory I wasn't familiar with, the first thing I do, and, and this sounds odd as, a, as an, another agent, is I'd engage a buyer's agent. Uh, I wouldn't do all that legwork. I'd have somebody doing it for me because I promise you when when Sean calls Agent B down the road, he gets more information out of Agent B than you do as, as a buyer, all because he's already had a, had a um, relationship with the guy, and he calls and says, hey, I've got a buyer looking for 60 acres in Hamilton County. Do you have anything? He goes, no, but... You know, I know John down there. He may have something. Let me make a few phone calls for you. But when when a, when a buyer's agent engages, engages another agent with potential listings or potential something, a sale, they know that guy's serious. They know they've got a buyer who is going to buy something, and they are going to jump through hoops on that backside to find something just as well as your buyer's agent is going to. I mean, he's going to go through and uh, Sean went through probably Land, watch Lands of America, Google search engines, looking for what base what you're looking for uh, to find just like you would. But some people enjoy that process, the, the, the hours and hours of looking. Uh, some people would rather just call somebody and say, hey, find this for me and let me know when I can come look at it. So it all depends on what your overall goals are. If you're a, a research-minded guy like you are, I'm sure, Mark, some guys are not that. They're more they're not so much process-driven as they are end-result-driven. So they're going to look at, okay, how can I find the farm I want the fastest? And that's just say, hey, 
find somebody you're comfortable with and say, find me this. And then they go to work for you. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely, I, I, to your point, Joe, you're right. I am definitely process driven and I I did want to get in the details and it was, it was at first, at first it was really fun getting to search and look at all these places online and thinking about them, looking at the maps and thinking like I even went so far as like each place I'd look at the aerial and I'd be thinking, okay, your most common wind directions here in late October and November, November are going to be northwest or west-northwest, maybe west. So how would you access this farm? How would you set up? Where do you think this would be happening? So I was like thinking like that level of detail for each one of these places. So that was a lot of fun. Like I geek out on that stuff. But it was, you know, two and a half months or three months later after I'd done this, you know, 30 times. And I've looked at the same properties over and over and over because every time I search, well, I've seen that one and said no to that one. I've seen that one and said no to that. Like, why isn't there something that's going to work? Um, then it became frustrating. And and I wish I had been talking to Sean at that point because I hadn't looped in Sean until later. And, and I think he would have probably helped me a lot more get to the end goal that I wanted sooner after the fun or before the fun ran out probably. Um <laughs> Correct. But but yeah. yeah, I mean, I I looked at the four whitetail properties properties and j- just wasn't the right fit. But I walked those four, and then I walked another oh one two three four five. I think I walked at least another five farms. So there was at least and maybe six. I can't remember now. Um, but at least five other places that looked like they had at least potential. I was I found myself already like having to compromise on my criteria list because there just wasn't that perfect spot yet but there was one that maybe checked four out of five boxes i was like well i'll at least go and look at it on the ground and see um so i walked you know i walked there was one big one that had a little bit of wetlands on it in the wrp program i think it is and then there was a bunch of crp in it uh, or maybe the whole thing was wrp but it was some wetlands and some was just more grassy type stuff um that had some interesting potential but just ended up being a little bit too far away i walked one property that um, was in a pretty good area, but just one big block of thick timber. Um, and it held a lot of deer, but it seemed like there was a lot of hunting pressure around it. And also, I just didn't feel comfortable and didn't know how difficult it would be to, you know, deal with getting a logging crew in there and if I could afford that and all that stuff. And I just, that wasn't what I wanted to get into. I kind of liked the idea of having some open areas already that we could work with. I remember walking a piece, um, that wasn't a great looking area. Um, this is another one. It was a, I saw a whole lot of either way too much open space or no open space. It was hard to find that mix of both. Um, so several mm-hmm. spots I found were like just a big wide open CRP field that was next to some really good stuff. And I, I was thinking to myself, man, if I could get like a good screen in here and plant some trees and you could make it great, but it would be like a six year longer project. Um, so I was like battling in my mind, is it worth trying something like that or should you look for something that's going to give you a little bit better foundation? Um, one spot I found was a 42-acre piece that had, um, I think, like 16 or 7 acres of, of crop field on it in the front, including one that was like totally covered with timber all around it, just a little like one-acre triangle on the edge of the timber, really nice little secluded field. And then there's a creek running through it that was like really brushy and thick, and then it grew into like bigger open timber and some hills back behind it and it tucked right into this area that i actually knew about from just some like i originally talked to some guy at a pro shop an archery shop who told me there's a great qdm co-op in the area and told me about some of the deer they're killing and then i found out through i don't know some acquaintance that such and such person hunts down the road there and through this whole research process i found that the neighboring property 
was up for sale as well, way out of my price range. But uh, this was owned by this other person or this other group of people who were really serious about deer hunting. So all of a sudden I was like, man, this is the spot. We can afford it. It's next to these like super serious deer hunters. It's got a nice mix of terrain. So I talked to the agent. This is before I had a buyer's agent, and this was a property that was not listed with Whitetail Property. So I just called this guy up, and he's like, oh, yeah, sorry. It just – someone just uh, put it under contract, or they, they put in an offer, and they're dealing with the financing right now. So I was like, ah, oh, bummer. But he's like, you know, go out and take a look at it just in case because it was taking like a long time for it to close or something. So I walked it. Everything was confirmed. looks great. And long story short, like a week or two later, the agent gets back in touch with me and says, hey, sounds like the financing fell through. It's available now. You should put it in an offer. So I get really excited. All right, we're going to do this. This is the spot. Great neighborhood, great diversity of terrain, great access, A, B, C, D, F, G. It's all there. Um, and I call him back and I say, hey, I, I'm going to take one more walk and then I'm going to put it in an offer. I just want to like look at it one last time. And then he says to me, oh, sorry, I was wrong. It just closed. So I'm like crushed wow. at this point. Like it was an, it was that emotional roller coaster. You talked Joe about how you don't want to get mm-hmm. too emotionally like caught into it. And that was definitely what happened to me. It was just mm-hmm. like the ups and downs, super frustrating. So, well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, I think that, that, that agent probably dropped the ball a little bit uh, because if it's something you're interested in, I, we would have encouraged you to make a backup offer. So you can make a backup offer on something that's already under contract. And if something falls out, it falls out, they miss a deadline or they can't close or something happens, then you become the primary contract automatically. And it's yours without having to wait for a phone call. I I would have encouraged that. uh, And I assume Sean would have encouraged the same thing to throw a backup offer in there. And when a seller knows there's a backup offer, they're not always so willing to extend or look through extenuating circumstance for the primary offer. I mean, if they, if it's taken, you know, if it's a 30 day close and they're in the 90 days, they've had a couple extensions and the buyer seems to be goofing off and not really getting that stuff together. They may just drop that contract and take up with the, uh, the secondary offer, the backup offer, and then it's yours and you're moving forward. So if you've got something that you like, that's under, under contract, or presumably under contract, there may just be a verbal offer made on it, and they're telling you there's an offer made on it, it's under contract. I always encourage putting in a backup offer. It's the one you want, make a backup offer on it, because it may become yours. It happens more often than not. Well, that's what a few other people told me afterwards, was like, you know what, um, a lot of people put an offer, and then the financing doesn't pan out, or the uh, what do you call it? The, uh, not the assessment. Appraisal. appraisal. Yeah. Appraisal. Yep. That yep, will appraisal. not come back. Right. So, so is that something that commonly happens? Uh, you know, it's not common, common. I, you know, I'd say it's maybe 10 or 15% of the time, uh, that there's some contingency that a contract is terminated, but it happens often enough that if I'm a buyer and I find something I really want, I'm putting a backup offer on it no matter what. Yeah. Uh, just because that's the property I want. If something falls through, and there are a myriad of things that can happen in between contract signing and closing, uh, that that may put you in the primary spot to be the purchaser of that property. Yeah, yeah, that's that seems like a, a good idea, and I probably should have done that. And it, it all it all worked and out. That's okay, some of the la- layers. Those are some of the layers that you peel back, and you know when you started this process it's all, this is all the stuff that hits you in the face and you're like, wow. And we experienced some of that with the the actual purchase of the the property that you did get. Yeah. 
Very true. Just, and I was going to say that that kind of leads us right to what happened next because um, that morning, right, I talked to this other agent and he tells me, oh, sorry, it's not available now. And I'm like stressed out and it's getting late into the spring. And I'd been hoping that, you know, we could find a property to purchase early this year. So we'd have lots of time to put a lot of work in already this spring and summer and have stuff ready for the first year of hunting. Um, now it's getting later and later and later in the year. And I'm stressing like, we're not going to find to do anything. It's getting so late. Um, I thought this was going to work out and it's not, I swear I've looked at everything, but I was like, I'll just go back and look at these stupid search engines one more time. So I go back in there and I, I look at all the different spots I've saved and the ones that are kind of like meh, but I put them on my list as like potential, but I never really fell in love with them. And there was one that I didn't really like all that much because just a few things about it just didn't seem to be perfect, but it was like a middle of the road. And I thought to myself, you know what? I just need to get out of the house today and look at something and and get really excited about this. Or maybe I'll happen to stumble across something else. Or maybe this will look better in person than it does on the map. Um, I was just kind of like in a low spot. I was kind of bummed and we're never going to find anything. So I'm just going to go out and check this spot out and maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised. So get permission to go check out this farm. And as I'm driving to the farm, I pass by the neighboring property and there's a for sale sign on the neighboring property and it says acreage. And I think to myself, huh, that's interesting. I could just kind of, you can't see a whole lot from the road of this property, but it looked like there was brushy overgrown fields. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I step out onto the property that I'm going to look at originally and I'm like, all right, I'll check this out. But then as I'm walking that, I pull up the aerial map to look at the neighboring property. And right away I'm like, oh man, the neighboring property looks real interesting. So I take a little walkabout of the original farm and it kind of confirmed what I thought. It was it was basically a big CRP field with a couple little trees here and there and one little pocket of pines. Um, and in those pines, though, I found a bunch of like really good rubs for Michigan. Like these are sizable, like six, seven inch, eight inch diameter trees just tore up. And you don't see that here too often in Michigan. So that was like, a, oh, that's a good sign. Um, which made me think that the neighboring property, which looked a lot better from the other criteria that I mentioned, that's in the same area. It's right next door. That's a great opportunity. So I went and I looked at that for sale sign, got the phone number, called the agent or the agency for that property, got permission to walk this one. And I walked it. And this one started checking the boxes. Um, it was 60 acres. So it was right up there towards the size I wanted. It was within our price range, and it had five or six old crop fields that had been let go fallow. So they're all overgrown with all sorts of junk. So it was actually like pretty good thick stuff, but easily reclaimed, right? If I wanted to plant food plots or something, I could pretty easily still do that. Um, there was big, brushy, thick fence rows separating all that. So it wasn't like it was just one huge open field. These were small little fields that were overgrown. Timber where I could hang tree stands and stuff like that. And then there's nice rolling hilly topography to it and a big swamp in the middle. And in Michigan, one of the biggest challenges we deal with is getting a buck past, you know, two or three years old. Like you just, most bucks as a year and a half old get shot here. So to have, at least from what I've found, Sean, maybe you've seen something different or maybe you agree with this, but there's got to be something in your area that is special that a buck can get to and survive. So maybe it's a little property that no one's allowed to hunt. Maybe it's a 
a reserve of some kind that's just for nature viewing, but no one can hunt it. Or maybe it's a great big swamp that's really hard to get into and kill a deer. Um, if you've got something like that, you've got a chance for older age class buck to make it. And this big swamp seemed like that kind of thing. Um, so right away, like I'm walking, I'm seeing all these things. It's, it's got the good cover. It's got diversity of terrain. It's got the swamp, which could hold and possibly get a buck to an older age class. It's got access. I could get in here and, and get to different spots to hunt it. As I'm walking it, I can see, you know, neighboring properties and I can see one of the neighbors has got a food plot planted and he's got licking branches put out over, over his food plot, like in a fake scrape tree. So I'm like, oh man, this guy takes it serious. Like that's something that your average deer hunter probably doesn't do. Um, so all of a sudden, like I'm getting excited again. This looks like a good fit. Um, and that finally then is when I got you into the mix, Sean, because after walking mm-hmm. it, I thought to myself, wow, this is the best thing I've seen yet, probably. And it just kind of came about by happenstance. At my lowest of lows, I happened I happened upon by chance to find a property that wasn't that even all the searching I did online never came across this property. And turns out it just was no offense to the uh <laughs> the listing agent, but it just was not it was it was poorly presented online. There was one single picture. It was an aerial photograph of the property. There was almost no detail about it. Um, it was almost impossible. I, ne- I never found it in all of my searching. So I just kind of got lucky that this was just not put out there too terribly well. Um, so I thought, yeah, this looks like it. And then after going back and thinking about things and talking with some people, thought, you know what, if you're going to put an offer, you might I was realizing at this point I might want to get a professional involved because I didn't really know what I was doing. So that's when I called you, Sean, and said, hey, I've been hearing about this buyer's agent kind of thing. Could you help me out with this as a buyer's agent? Um, And the first step was that you were to come out and look at the place with me because I thought for sure it'd be good to have a second set of eyes on it with me um, to see, make sure I wasn't, you know, looking at this thing through rose colored glasses, make sure I was seeing the same things, um, that anybody else would. So what did you think when you walked it? Um, what were your thoughts from that first, um, that first impression? Well, well, the first thing I thought it, it actually took me back. Like when we had first kind of talked and you had looked at one of my properties and then you gave me a little bit of the criteria and then uh, then I started looking like you weren't really tied into me yet to start looking for you. Cause you were still in the process of, you know, looking at your own properties. And I did a little research and, and that was actually one of the, I don't know, one of 15 properties. That was the one, only one that really stood out to me that that would be in your, in your wheelhouse. And when you said that that was the property, it kind of like was a light bulb or like, just like a, I don't know, just something, something went off that like, this is a, this is a good property because you identified it. And it was one of the ones that stuck in my head as it might be a good property for you because it was, you know, when I got there, I was like, one of the things I didn't expect was the rolling topography there. And I was like, I was like, wow, that was like an added little bonus to it because, you know, in, like you said, in the listing, the only picture he had there was an aerial photo and you really can't get a lot all I got from that aerial photo was that, all right, there's a lot of brushy cover and there was a couple five acre fields in there that were, you know, separated. So it kind of gave me the idea of, yeah, you could go in there and, and plant food plots and kind of, you know, paint the picture however you wanted there. But then there was a lot of natural cover. But when I got there and I saw the rolling topography 
and the, the layout, I was, I was really impressed with it. I was like, wow, this is a really nice property. I'm surprised that it, it, it wasn't sold yet. Yeah. And then that was, that was my, that was my initial, initial feeling when I got there. And I think when we walked, I was pretty quiet. I was just kind of taking it all in. Yeah. Although I did appreciate the fact, you know, you're pointing out things that I wouldn't have noticed because one of the things that I'm, that I'm going to use this property to hopefully improve on is like being able to identify different types of flora, different types of trees. Um, that's something I haven't gotten very good at yet, but I'm trying to, but you were telling me, okay, that's a cherry tree and this is a such and such tree. And these are red oaks versus white oaks. And this is some good stuff here. Um, that was beyond some of my, my, uh, knowledge level that was helpful. But, but another thing that I thought was really interesting that again, I was not getting when I was looking at properties by myself, but when you showed up, you had a folder with a whole bunch of information about it, about this property that I had not had access to yet. Could you tell me what it was you came with that um, that we, we looked at to learn more about the property before even walking it? Oh, let me see here. When I showed up there, I think I had, um, I had aerial photos, but then I know after the fact we got into the title, like some of the title work and, and I looked into um, some of the tax data before I got there and uh, the aerial photo that was there, is this what you're talking about? The aerial photo that we had of the property. And then when I got into the tax data, there was information about uh, multiple tax ID numbers well, in, yeah. inside that aerial photo. Is that what you're talking about? Well, I was going to say even before that, what about all the uh, the acre, oh gosh, uh, acre value oh, website oh yeah, stuff acre. or the, the soil? You brought all these different soil maps that show the soil quality breakdowns and a whole bunch of stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was a acre value. Um, you can get a soil analysis map where it prints out, you know, printed out what types of soil and how many, how much of that soil was over what amount of the acreage. And it was a good tool to, uh, you know, know the soil composition and the layout. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting to see what kind of soil quality we had. And then I remember I'm looking here at the folder right now that you gave me. I've got the tax information, the GIS. Uh, read out about the property. Um, even had a sample buying agreement that I could look at just to see, okay, this is what a potential contract would look like if we were going to do this. Um, mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. was that was all helpful stuff. Um, and I, I definitely felt just more confident after seeing that. And, and you seem to think, you know, after walking it, there weren't any, there weren't any visible red flags. Like everything looked good as we walked it. The only red flag was the yeah. fact that why is this thing still here? Like, how come it hasn't gotten sold yet? Because right. it almost seemed too good to be true, right? Right. Is there is there any other, uh, I don't know, going through that process, Joe, maybe any things like when you're walking a farm with someone, are there any kind of potential red flags that you look for or specific kind of gotcha things that a lot of people miss because they're excited and they overlook things? Um, in my case, brought Sean out. We didn't see any red flags, but was there anything that you've experienced in the past that could catch someone up maybe? No, you know, you'd seeing that those fields have gone fallow. I'd want to know why those fields went fallow. Are they too small for the farmer? Was it expired CRP? Is it a permanent easement program like WRP or CREP? Uh, because those all change the values of that ground. Uh, but calling Sean, having him walk it with you, and he probably knew the value. He probably gave you a really good idea. It's either priced in the market or it's way overpriced, or here's what it's really worth or what it'll appraise for. But those 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 kind of hidden things, uh, 
mineral rights issues that you're going to find, and we're going to get to that, I imagine, and title work, stuff like that, any easement issues, especially and looking at those fields, I'd want to make sure that they aren't in a permanent easement CREP, CREP, or a WRP program, or any other conservation easement, where it may prohibit you from planting food plots or doing any uh, habitat manipulation, because a lot of those conservation easements are literally, you leave it in the condition it's in, and that's all you can do. You can't cut the timber, can't plant food plots, can't do anything. And you don't want to get into something that you may be able to get into it way cheaper, but it's worth less as you move forward and you can't do with it what you want to do with it. So you need to make, you need to be cognitive why those fields weren't, uh, were left fallow. Yeah. And that, that's kind of right in line with what you're in station, right? Oh yeah. Like that's what we got into. Uh, cause then once we went back and we pulled the title work, a lot of the, a lot of information started to come to the surface. We, we kind of, you know, that's all we kept thinking was, why isn't this sold yet? And we got into it and kind of, you know, figured some things out with, with the reasonings and we will probably get to that a little bit later. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's talk about that now because, you know, I did the walkthrough, then you and me came through and did the walkthrough and, and I looked at you, I'm like, Sean, does this seem as good as I think it is? And you're like, yeah, I really do. Um, it's just like, we need to understand the details behind it. Like, is there something we, we don't know about yet? So basically by the end of that mm-hmm. day, we sat down, we reviewed a potential purchase agreement. You, I kind of had you walk me through what we'd be doing. Um, and this was something, you know, I've never been through before. I had no idea what happens next. And that was a little intimidating, right? I'm glad I had someone to be there with me because I, you know, if I had worked originally like that first property I wanted to put an offer on before I was talking to you, if I had done this without a buyer's agent, that guy was just going to have me like fill out some paperwork online and I was just going to go with it and just trust this guy, hope this guy, you know, was working in my best interest. I don't know what I was doing. I wouldn't have known all the things that you did after this would have been, I don't know what would have happened. So Walk me through, if you can, what you told me once I said, hey, I want to put in an offer, but help me understand what that process looks like and how do we make sure that like we're protected in case there is some weird thing going on that we don't know about yet. Um, that's what I asked you, and then you explained it to me. Can you explain it to us again now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, part of, the, uh, part of the process is p- placing the, the offer. And in, in, in that contract, there's different contingencies and one of them is that they've got to provide a, uh, the, like a clean sellable title and your, your title agency will go in and, and they kind of do some digging for you. And we had kind of identified a couple things that were odd, um, with the original listing, um, because there was only two, the, the aerial photo and the outline that they were showing as the property for sale wasn't the property for sale according to the, the tax IDs. And we wanted to make sure that what we were, what we were buying was what we were buying. So we, we ended up um, finding out that one of the tax IDs wasn't included in the property, but there was an additional tax ID that was. So when we wrote the offer, we, we included the three, three tax IDs. So that um, was to make sure that we, we bought all the property there, not just the two, we would have ended up with um, less acreage than what was in the aerial photo. But then when that offer went to title, they were able to, um, bring up some information, which uncovered the, the potential short sale, which we needed to get approval from the bank, the seller's bank on. And, um, yeah, before we get kind of the biggest hurdle right there. 
Yeah, before we get to that, though, there was another question, too, which was um, about easements and stuff, right? Because there was like some funky things going through the property a little bit. Uh, and you were able Correct. to, and I think this was in the title process, but I can't remember exactly in that, in the, in the offer, it was contingent that we were able to review this stuff. We could review the title work and the easements and everything we had. I think it was five days or 10 days or something like that, that we could review it all, make sure that there wasn't something funky. Um, could you describe what, it, what, what some of those other things were, right? There was, uh, several different easements that we had to double check on, right? Uh, yeah, there was um, an easement that one of the parcels was part of an old railroad bed. And just to make sure that you had, that there wasn't any um, ownership in the railroad and what they could do to that. Because there's some, some places in Michigan where they, they turned the old railroads to rails to trails. You wanted to make sure that, that you had ownership of it and they, they weren't, they didn't have any ownership to do anything above surface on it. There was also the electrical easement on there. And there was also the access easement that we weren't sure about until the end where when we first viewed the property, we came through a driveway that was part of the easement to get to the original property. But then we, we found out that 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 didn't transfer and they created the, uh, the culvert up on the road for us. Um, I want to say that was, that was the three easement issues that we had. Yeah. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go. But here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. The one other thing we had questions about, which which after we went through this process, you called me up and said, well, hey, here's here's what's going on. The the power line easement's fine. The railroad easement, there's nothing to worry about there. You would own that. Um, then there was something, and I can't remember exactly what it was called. It was like a the the croplands were in a program. It was like quality farm ground or or official or qualified farm oh, yeah, land. Or the, what, um, what was that? Qualify, it, was a, um, it was a qualified. We wanted to make sure that it wasn't in a... Um, like a PA 260 or a, uh, it was in a qualified, it was qualified farmland, which gave you a different tax 
price on the property, but we wanted to make sure that it wasn't in a, um, uh, like a land bank program, which prohibited you from, from doing anything to the property if you wanted to, because some of them programs have different criteria and we wanted to just make sure that there was no restrictions on the, the farmland, which is something Joe talked about earlier. I think with finding out what restrictions were. Yeah. Yeah. With, are there any other scenarios like this, Joe, uh, worth noting any other programs you mentioned the WRP CRP, we just talked about the qualified farm ground. Um, any other programs like that, or we kind of touched on most of them. Yeah. Every, every state's different. Every, every state deals with several different conservation easements. Uh, some of them just pro- prohibit, they lower your tax base. They just prohibit, uh, the property from ever being subdivided, uh, which generally in a smaller parcel doesn't make that big difference, but it's about 100 acres. Now you want to sell 20 acres to your son to build a house. If it's in a conservation easement, a lot of times you cannot do that. Um, the biggest easement that I really worry about is ingress egress e- easement. So you may, and it sounds like you went through that on this property where you thought the driveway was your ingress egress, but they actually put in a culvert for you. Those could all be shook out in title work. But I really worry about the property behind your property possibly having access through your property because it happens a lot right down the center of your 60 acres. There may be a road going back to the neighbor's property. And if that is, in fact, a deed of easement, that devalues that property to you probably because you don't want to be in a deer stand and somebody come driving by on your pickup (laughs) at a half hour before dark. Uh, So those things really can't be shook out most of the time until you do title work. But that's, that's why it's important for to have somebody uh, go through those contracts with you. Because if you wrote a contract online or you hired an attorney to write you a contract, there's a lot of those things that could be missed. Um, so having somebody who's knowledgeable in the land base and land sales makes a giant difference because they're, they're going to make sure you're covered. So if there's an easement issue or a clear title issue, or maybe you have a, a mineral rights, you know, you're going to do a survey issue or financing issue. There's lots of things in there that are contingencies. A good agent is going to protect you with all those. So if something comes up out of title work or something comes up in your due diligence period after the offer is made, that you still have an ability to get out of that contract without having to pay a penalty. Yeah. Based on the seller not being able to provide good title. So. Yeah. So, so basically moving on then, we're able to clear all the title stuff, right? All the easements, all the programs that all seem to make sense. Um, we'd already determined ahead of time that this was a good value. You'd gone ahead and done a, a pretty detailed, even acre by acre valuation based off soil types and what the tillable would go for and what would the non-tillable go for and all that. And everything matched up well. We felt good about the price per acre. Um, those things were all handled. It seemed like, okay, it's green light, the offer, um, we had a little bit of back and forth on the offer, but we came to a place that felt good. But then the last thing, and you mentioned this, Sean, was the fact that we found out that there was some language in the contract about uh, contingent on approval of a short sale. And I don't know what that was. Um, I don't know how that was going to impact us in any way. It kind of got me a little nervous. Um, can you walk us through what that was, Sean, how we dealt with it, what it how it impacted us in, in a little bit? Yeah, it, it just it basically just slowed us down a little bit in the process, but we had to wait on the bank. Uh, there was the original owners, um, own this piece with another larger piece and to sell it, um, the money needed to go back to the bank and they need to, they need to approve it. Um, cause they weren't selling it for the, the full, I think the full value of what they, 
owed on it. Yep. So, and, and once the bank okayed that, we were okay to go, but it was, it kind of slowed us down and, and gave us, uh, you know, something to look at as far as what was really going on because the, the wordage did come up. And it was something that was a surprise to us all. It wasn't anything that the agent talked about to us in the, uh, the beginning of the process. Yeah. Are there any other things like that? Um, uh, any other, when it comes to the closing like this, when it comes to the final, you know, details, like after that point, like the short sale got approved right by the bank. And, and once that was approved and it was approved on our end, um, we just had to sign on the dotted line. Right. Um, was there anything else going through your mind that you thought might've been a potential, um, hiccup still, it might happen. Or, or was there anything you were thinking about or, or that somebody else should be thinking about, I guess, if they're in this process and they're, they're right about to sign and close on this thing, any final be carefuls or keep an eye out for this type of thing that we should mention? You know, I mean, the, it's limitless. Like a property can be like in a perfect world situation. So easy to go through this process. I mean, uh, in a perfect world, if it's a cash deal, it could go through in a, a couple of weeks, but I mean, this can drag on with these type of hurdles get through over a period of three months or, or more, not even happen. So, um, it, it just, it's each individual transaction, uh, I mean, there's, there's a limitless amount of things that could happen. Yeah. I don't know, Joe, do you got any yeah, that, you know, ideas you went about through that? It, what you went through is fairly common uh, for an approval process by a bank. If, if, if it's in a state or it's a trust or it's a divorce, there may be attorney review. Uh, some estates require a, a probate case would require a probate court judge approving it. Uh, sometimes those take time, and if there's any Body in the estate that objects to it, they can extend that out. I had one personally that went 15 months uh, going back and forth in and out of court. Luckily, the buyer was was very patient, uh, and he ended up buying it, and we negotiated it. The longer it went on, his price went down. So uh, we made sure that he was, he was getting the property for the price he wanted, but the longer it went on, because I knew it could be a problem going into with probate approval, uh, that for every month the price went down fifty or a hundred dollars an acre, uh, so it motivated the estate themselves that uh, hey we need to get this wrapped up because literally one of the members of the estate was dragging her feet and would not show up in court and extend court and all that. That's why it took fifteen months, but it literally it literally saved the buyer several thousand dollars in the end because we put those limits on there. And I probably if we wouldn't have had that decreasing amount we probably would still be in probate court process waiting for that thing to get done. But we see it a lot with the states. Like I said, there may be a state attorney needs to approve uh, short sales, like a bank approval, especially if you're taking uh, like 60 acres out of a 400 acre track that will have to be approved by the bank. Cause I have to give you a lien release on that for that 60 acres. Cause they can't pay off the entire lien. They're taking part of it to pay off part of it. Uh, so there's lots of things like that. So just be patient and and see what's happening as you go through title work and and hear about these things. You'll you'll learn about these things afterwards uh, after you put a purchase off the purchase in because a lot of times they don't get flushed out until that point. Yeah, yeah, that was another big aha for me. I was I was very naive 
I thought that, okay, we'll put an offer and, you know, six days from now, I'll be able to go out there and we own it. <laughs> and that was not the case. Yep. Um, and we were, we were lucky that most of the stuff going on for us was pretty easy. Like it probably could have been, like you mentioned, Sean, some people it takes months and months. So we were lucky. It was just a, I don't know, handful of week process. But, um, but yeah, the, the, the ending was a happy ending. We were able to close and everything looked good. And, we uh we now own this uh I think it's just about sixty four acres, I think is the official total of it. And uh it is a super cool little piece with lots of potential. And uh we even got a picture from the previous owner shared a picture with you, Sean, of a really nice buck that was shot on a neighboring property, which is another really nice uh confidence booster. So I feel like this farm mm-hmm. has got Tons of potential from a deer hunting standpoint. A lot of other cool projects we can do to help other wildlife, and uh, you know, have a lot of fun out there too. So, I'm very excited. I'm uh, very thankful for all your help, Sean, through this process. And uh, I guess before we wrap it up, though, I want to make sure that there's not anything else um, that we've left off the table here. As far as I don't know, is there anything else, Joe or Sean, thinking in your head right now? If someone's listening to this. And they want to buy a farm and they've been listening to, to understand, you know, hear my example and hopefully apply that to their future purchase decision and process. Have we missed anything? We've left any important pieces of the puzzle out that you really want to make sure that we leave someone with? Anything for you, Joe, that, that jumps out right away? No, I'm just going to reiterate the fact that I, I would basically, I would call several agents to interview them, talk to them, look at properties with them and find somebody I feel comfortable with. And I would engage with them because they will save you money and they will save you a bunch of headaches down the road. This is what they do every day. This is not a one, one time, once in a lifetime time transaction, which is a lot. I mean, most guys make one big purchase in their life of land and that's it. Some will make several, but, uh, engaging somebody who knows that business to protect you. I mean, you wouldn't go, you wouldn't try to perform surgery yourself. Don't, don't try to do real estate yourself. Although most of the time you get out of it. All right. In a situation like this with these easements and and, uh, and the short sale and the contingencies that you had, you could have got yourself into a real bad bind where you're forced to perform on that contract and buy that property, even though it has some problems or some red flags that would give you the opportunity to get out if somebody would have wrote the contract for you correctly. So I can't, I can't stress that enough. I, I think most buyers uh, think it's going to cost them extra money to have an agent involved, but just interview a couple guys feel comfortable with somebody if you feel comfortable you have a bond with that person feel they're going to have your best interest and they're knowledgeable in the base and with the criteria you want engage that guy and make him work for you because i promise you it'll save you a ton of headaches down the road other than that like sean said there there are 10 million scenarios and there's no way we can go over those in, in any kind of conversation because literally even at the office with 220 agents and listen to several scenarios a day, we look, we come up with a new scenario nearly every day. I mean, just something that there's several of us there in the office that have a ton of experience and we're like, we're all scratching our heads. We got to figure it out. And then (laughs) we'll have a, we'll have a quorum to figure that out. So, yeah, well, that's, that's definitely what it seems to be. Uh, my big takeaway from this is, is, don't feel bad about getting some help. I uh, I wish I would have done that sooner, and I'm glad I finally did at the end because I would have been over my head. So uh, so I guess that leaves us with the hero, which is Sean. Uh, do you have any final final words? Any final uh, 
suggestions or anything for folks? Um, I, I would say like first, I, I'm not the hero, and uh, I would say that <laughs> I bounced a lot of this. Uh, I, I really reached out to my home office, Joe and and Joe and Kirk, Kirk Gilbert, and you know a lot of people at Whitetail Properties to help me through through this and some other uh, some other properties that I've dealt with problems on. So that's one of the good things about being an agent for this company is that you, you've got such a, a great resource in Pittsfield of, you know, guys that like I said, there's 200 agents and they deal with this stuff every day. So whenever I run into a roadblock, I can always call them and, and have them help me through it. So, um, Oh, it's kind of, I mean, we touched on everything. Good. Okay. I'm glad we were, we were thorough. I feel like this was, uh, this was fun to get to talk about this kind of topic, but with a happy story that I'm involved in. Um, that's pretty cool. So yeah. I guess the final thing would be for people that are listening and they want to learn more about what Whitetail Properties has to offer in general. And then if they want to get a hold of you specifically, Sean, or you, Joe, either one of you, um, could you guys just explain to the listeners where and how they could do that? Go ahead, Sean. All right. Yeah, you can um, get on whitetailproperties.com. And you can get to, um, there's a list of agents or you can click on the state and then find the agents through the website. Uh, or you can, or you can email me directly at Sean, S-H-A-W-N dot Kelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y at whitehealthproperties.com with any questions or, or, or concerns you might have. Okay. I can uh, kind of try and help you out. Great. And Joe? Uh, same, go to whitetailproperties.com. Call me at the office, 217-285-9000. Uh, my personal sales listed on there. It's 217-299-0332. I, I take calls. Sean will tell you I take calls all time of the hours of the day, whether it be 6 a.m. or, or 11 p.m. I, I'm always good about taking calls and returning phone calls, as is Sean. So don't feel just feel free to reach out. to Just, just to have a conversation, even if you're not ready to buy yet. If you just want to talk about we have a lot of calls come into the office that are like, Hey, you know, I really want a recreational property, but I really don't know what I want yet. I don't know if I want big deer, if I want a pond, I don't know what state I want to be in. Even I know I want to be somewhere in the Midwest. Can you help me? So then you start working through values in that checklist with a guy and we'll do that as an, at an office. Then we'll pass that guy, that buyer along to a guy like Sean or Mike or Tim Woods that you mentioned, based on that guy's criteria, say, Hey, this is what this guy's looking for would you reach out to them if you got anything that fits? Because a lot of buyers literally do not have an idea where they want to be, just like you did when you started. You started at Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio. Now you keep fine-tuning it as you look through, uh, but you did that kind of on your own. But we can help do that for guys, uh, either through the office or through one of the land specialists. Very good. Well, uh, I'm really glad that we were able to do this. I'm glad um, that we looped you in, Sean, and the rest of the team. Everyone was was very helpful, and uh, it, it led to a, a really positive outcome that I'm excited about and thankful for. So, so thank you, Sean. Thank you, Joe, both for all of your help uh, during this process and this podcast. And uh, hopefully, we can talk yep. again soon with a, with more happy endings uh, about how this hunting season goes. Yeah, we're, we're kind of interested yeah, in the outcome and what, what your progress is with the habitat manipulation and how the farm works out for you long term. Definitely keep you posted. All right. Thank you, sir. All right. And that is a wrap. And that is it. Thank you for listening. As I mentioned at the top, make sure you're watching the Back 40 video series over on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. 
All seven episodes are out with one more to come this year and much more to come next year. Uh, otherwise, appreciate you guys being a part of the Wired Hunt family. Appreciate everyone who's picked up a copy of my new book, That Wild Country. Uh, the support's been incredible. You guys are awesome, and I appreciate you for it. So until next time, if I don't talk to you before Christmas or the holidays, Merry, Merry Christmas. Have a great holiday season. Enjoy the time with friends and family. Eat some good wild game. Spend some time outside. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.